I have my rights, you know. I'm sure you've heard someone say that. In fact, you may well have heard it lots of times, especially if you're a teacher or an employer. In recent years, we as a society have become very concerned about our rights. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the UN, the United Nations, drew up its Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states, among many other things, that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. No one shall be held in slavery or servitude. No one shall be subjected to torture. I think we'd agree it would be pretty hard to argue with any of those statements. But what has been happening more recently is that our list of what we believe to be our rights is getting longer and longer, to the point where many people would say today they have a right not to be offended by anything. And at least one European government has decided that access to high-speed internet is a right. So the question of rights has expanded to include what probably used to be called luxuries. And as Christians, all of this should force us to ask, how should we think about rights? We accept the Bible as our authority. It has the last word for us. So how does it teach us to think about rights? Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning is all about rights. And what it tells us might not be what we were expecting it to tell us. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're using a green church Bible, it's page 1150 or in the large print 1779. This section follows right on from chapter 8, which we looked at last week. In that passage, Paul was responding to a question from the Corinthians. What about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols? Can we go to a pagan temple and eat meat in the temple restaurant or the dining hall there? They had decided they could do that, and they were able to provide a theological reason for that decision. They said an idol is nothing at all in the world. It's just a statue. There's only one true God. Therefore, it's fine for us to go to the pagan temple and eat what we want. In chapter 10, Paul will have more to say about their theological thinking. But here, the beginning of chapter 9, he wants to deal with something else. Because Paul realizes what the heart of the issue is for the Corinthians. It is not their theology. The heart of the issue is they don't want to be deprived of their rights. Their freedom to go where they want to go and do what they want to do. Their theology is a convenient way to justify doing what they want. In this case, going to parties that are held at pagan temples. Their mentality was, don't we have rights? And as he responds to them, Paul doesn't take the approach we might expect him to take. He doesn't question whether the Corinthians have rights. In fact, he spends the first 12 verses of chapter 9 presenting a very strong defense of his own rights. 
You think you have rights, Paul says. Well, let me tell you about mine. Chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 23. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says it's for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. This is God's word. It speaks to men and women who are big on their rights and it tells them, yes, of course we have rights. In this passage, Paul presents himself as an example for us to follow. 
And he begins not by playing down his rights, he begins by playing them up. In verse 1, he wades straight in with his credentials. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? In other words, haven't I been commissioned as Jesus' messenger? Wasn't that commission given to me personally by Jesus when he appeared to me on the Damascus road? And aren't you, Corinthians, living proof of my apostleship? The message I brought to you changed your lives, didn't it? Verse 2, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Surely, Paul says, someone like me has rights. Verse 4, don't we have the right to food and drink? Meaning, don't we have the right to be provided for? We here includes Paul's co-workers who traveled with him. That includes Barnabas who gets mentioned in verse 6. Verse 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife with us? Couldn't I marry? And wouldn't I have the right to bring my wife with me on my missionary travels and have her be provided for as well? Paul says, of course I have those rights. I'm no different from the other apostles who receive that kind of support from the churches. As someone who brings life-changing good news, don't I have the right to be freed up from working to earn a wage? So I can preach this message and fulfill the mission Jesus gave me. He keeps going, firing off examples to back up his point. In verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Obviously, the answer is no one does that. There's no government that expects their army to provide their own kit and rations. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Again, the answer is no one. It's just common custom for workers to be provided for. So we might answer, yes, Paul, your rights cannot be disputed. And he goes further, he says, I can prove my rights not just from common human custom, I can prove it from the Bible. Verse 8, do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. The law Paul is referring to is the Old Testament law found in the first five books of the Old Testament. In verse 9, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. There are many places Paul could have quoted from to make his point. The law was given by God, and one of its primary concerns was to teach the value of human life, the importance of treating everyone fairly. And Paul chooses to quote a part dealing with animal rights. His point is, if God cares about oxen, and clearly he does, if he insists they get to eat some of the grain they're processing, how much more does God insist on the rights of human workers? <coughs> Further down in verse 13, Paul will mention the Old Testament priests. If God gave them the right to be provided for as they did their work at the temple, how much more should those who preach the gospel be provided for? 
In fact, verse 14, the Lord Jesus himself taught that. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, the worker deserves his wages. And in the context there, he was saying, expect those you preach to to provide for you. So Paul has solid biblical grounds for what he says to the Corinthians in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, in other words, if we've given you the good news about Jesus, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you, that you provide us with food, drink, and whatever else we need? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Well, what are we to make of all that? What's the significance of it? Well, there's an attitude that's sometimes found among Christians which we could call worm theology. Worm theology leads people to go on and on about how worthless they are. What pathetic specimens of insignificance they are. Now, sometimes that comes from a false humility. They tell everyone what worms they are so they can enjoy the affirmation that comes their way as their brothers and sisters in Christ try to build them up. Worm theology can actually be a front for pride, a way of just fishing for compliments but it can also be genuine. Christians can go on because they, and they can go about because they have a real sense of worthlessness. But whatever motivates it, worm theology is just not biblical. The Bible presents us with a picture of human worth and dignity that is second to none. It tells us we're here because we have a loving creator. He made us in his own image. The image of Almighty God is stitched into the fabric of who you are. The Bible tells us we are intentionally created eternal beings. We will live forever. It might be in heaven or it might be in hell, but we are eternal. We are that significant. None of us is a throwaway. Jesus Christ did not die for you because he considered you to be a worthless throwaway. For all your sin and for all my sin and rebellion, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit valued us enough to carry out a rescue mission. And that mission cost God more than we will ever understand. The Son died under God's curse to save us. The theory of evolution or any other theory cannot give any evidence that your life has real value. In fact, it tells you the opposite. It tells you your life is a meaningless accident. If you want any dignity, you'd better try and dream some up for yourself because you don't have any true dignity. But the Bible tells us something very different. It tells us we matter and it shows us why we matter. From Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation, right through those Old Testament laws about fair treatment, 
all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us God cares about us as individuals. He cares about our daily needs. That's what lies behind verses 1 to 12 here in our passage. Realize you have God-given rights. As Christians, we are not called to see ourselves as worms. And there's nothing holy about pretending we're worms. We have to get that clear. And then once we've got it clear, Paul calls us to go further. He calls us to make the good news about Jesus a higher priority than our rights. We don't need to deny our rights. But as Christians, there are things that matter more to us than our rights. We don't have to fight for our rights. Look what Paul says in the middle of verse 12. After asserting his own rights in the strongest possible way, specifically his right to be provided for by the Corinthian church, he says in the middle of verse 12, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What does Paul mean? He's referring back to the time he spent in Corinth. While he was there, he didn't make use of the right he has just defended with such great enthusiasm. He didn't rely on the Corinthians for food and drink or financial support. What did he do? Acts chapter 18 tells us he worked as a tent maker during the week. And then he preached on the Sabbath. Later on then, when his co-workers Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Meaning he gave up his nine-to-five tent-making job. It seems he was able to do that because Silas and Timothy brought a financial gift from, from another church. We know that Paul's general policy, as we read the book of Acts and his letters... His general policy was not to receive support from a new church while he was there with them. But he would accept support from churches later on when they were well established and he had moved on to another new area. Why? Why would he do things that way? Verse 12, he says, it's so as not to hinder the gospel of Christ. Well then, why would accepting support hinder the gospel? In this culture that he's writing to, if you accepted a gift, both you and the person who was giving the gift knew there were strings attached to the gift. By taking the gift, you were putting yourself under obligation to the giver. You now owed them back. They expected to be repaid in some way. I don't think it's just in Corinth that that understanding can sometimes be there. Before we moved to Pelsall, I spent a few months helping a church in Chicago. They didn't have a pastor, and the church was a bit of a distance from where we were living, so I would drive down for a couple of days in the week, and then I'd go and preach there on Sundays. I was completely new to the situation and completely new to all the people. And I think it was the first Sunday I was there, a man and his wife were leaving the church after the morning service when he reached out and put $20 into my hand. 
I thought that was very kind of him. But the next week, he did it again. He wouldn't stop to talk with me, but he was giving me these $20 bills. So after a couple of weeks of that, I asked one of the deacons about this man. And the deacon said, that man is an alcoholic who treats his wife terribly. He's trying to get on your good side. That man figured he could pay me not to poke around in his life. Maybe even to take his side in the situation with his wife. That's the kind of situation Paul wanted to avoid in Corinth. He doesn't want anyone to think they can bribe him or make him obligated to them because he has accepted their support. And there's another element to this. We learned back in chapter 1 that not many in the Corinthian church are well off. A lot of them are slaves. If Paul had accepted financial support from the church, it would have come mainly from a very small section of the church, those who had resources. And they would then assume that Paul was, if not quite in their pocket, at least on their side. While the slaves in the church, those who didn't have anything to give by way of support, they would have assumed exactly the same thing. That Paul was in the pay of the wealthy few. And can you see how the result of that would be a massive hindrance to the gospel? The message of God's free grace in Jesus Christ, offered equally to all. And so because Paul made the gospel a higher priority than his own rights, he did not make use of his right to support in terms of food, drink, and other needs. Look down to verse 15 where he gives more explanation. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul says, look, I have no option but to preach about Jesus. He met me on the Damascus road and he gave me a direct commission. I could not refuse. Anyone who knows my story is well aware of that. So how can I prove then that I'm wholehearted and enthusiastic about my message? This good news of salvation in Jesus. How can I prove that I personally value this good news? That's what Paul means when he talks about the boast he doesn't want to be deprived of. It's the boast about the greatness of Jesus and what Jesus has done. How can Paul find a way to do that when everyone knows he's compelled to preach, whether he wants to or not? Paul can show how much he values the message by foregoing his rights for the sake of the message. 
refusing financial support from Corinth cost Paul. It cost him a lot in terms of extra time and effort and hard work. But it removed a hindrance to the gospel in that situation. It prevented any suspicion that he was in the pocket of the donors. And that sacrifice of his rights also showed that Paul valued the gospel above all else. It showed the gospel truly meant more to Paul than his God-given rights. Those who heard Paul preach, they knew they weren't just listening to another traveling scholar selling his intellectual wares for money. People like that came through Corinth all the time, making money out of their teaching. But Paul wasn't getting money. That was not what they were used to. And it would cause people to ask, what kind of message could captivate someone so much they would turn down support just so they could offer it free of charge? So Paul has shared his own example with us, and it is unique to him. It's not likely we will find ourselves in the same situation. But Paul's example does challenge us to ask, in my situation, in yours, are there ways we can make the good news about Jesus a higher priority than our rights? For the Corinthians themselves, the application would have been obvious. If you think back to chapter 8 and what we heard there, If insisting on their right to eat idol meat would hinder the gospel of Christ by luring others back into idol worship, the question for the Corinthians was, are they willing to forego that right? And we have to ask, what means more to us? The gospel or something else? For the Corinthians, it was the gospel or their freedom to eat steak and chips in Apollo's diner. But what might the application be for you and me? Which is the higher priority for you? The right to fight for higher wages? Or the opportunity to show contentment with what you have? What about the right to insist on a particular title at work? Maybe some other recognition that actually you deserve. Do you value that most? Or do you value the opportunity to show that your security comes not from your title, but from knowing God, being accepted by Him? In church, what means more to you? Your right to be built up and given attention? Or the opportunity to go out of your way for someone else? To see them built up and supported? Let's remember, Paul has shown us we are not worthless worms. If we choose to forego our rights, we do it from a place of confidence and assurance. We are loved and we are precious to God. 
And so for his sake, we can give up our rights. Not from a false humility, not from a sense that we're worthless. No, for Christ's sake, we choose to make our rights a secondary priority in our lives sometimes. Because he is always our first priority. Paul develops this in the final verses. He says, choose to serve all kinds of people for the sake of their salvation. If the last section was about holding our rights lightly, here the focus is on our right to be with our kind of people. Holding that lightly. We all have people we feel comfortable with. Hopefully, the people we feel most comfortable with will be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hopefully. But here, Paul has in mind people who are outside the church. Five times in these verses, he talks about wanting to win people. In verse 22, he explains what that means. He wants them to be saved. One for Christ and his kingdom. Paul says, for that... We must be willing to speak to and to serve all kinds of people, not just our kind of people. And just as he did with the question of rights, Paul says this is something we choose to do. Verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He says, I've just insisted at length that I'm not in anyone's pocket. I don't owe anyone in that sense. But when it comes to those who need to hear about Jesus, I do see myself as obligated, whether they're my kind of people or not. Verse 20, to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. Here, the Jews and those under the law are two ways of speaking about the same people. And Paul's own background is Jewish. That is his heritage. But since Paul met Christ, he no longer relates to God the way he used to. Unlike his own people, the Jews, he no longer believes that his relationship to God is based on keeping the Old Testament law. It's based on Jesus. Paul knows he's accepted by God because of what Jesus has done, not because of Paul's own law-keeping. In that sense, Paul no longer considers himself a Jew. But in order to win Jews to Christ, Paul is willing to live according to Jewish customs. The book of Acts gives us various examples of that. Back in chapter 7 of this letter, Paul could say, circumcision is nothing. It doesn't earn us any points with God. But the book of Acts tells us when Paul went on a preaching trip into a Jewish area, he had his co-worker Timothy circumcised in preparation for that trip. Why? To avoid giving unnecessary offense to Jews. Offense that might hinder them from listening to the message about Jesus. 
Now, we might argue that Timothy was the really flexible one in that example. But on several other occasions, Paul put himself through Jewish purification rites. He shaved off his hair as part of that. Just to prevent giving unnecessary offense to Jews. Verse 21. To those not having the law, in other words, Gentiles, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Paul is very careful to explain he's certainly not above authority. He's under Christ's authority. Jesus is his Lord and his master. But when he's preaching to Gentiles, he certainly isn't going to insist that they keep Jewish customs. As much as is possible, he'll fit in with their customs. In verse 22, he says, To the weak I become weak to win the weak. That might be a reference back to chapter 8 where he said those he's willing to give up his right to eat meat for the sake of those whose consciences are weak on that issue. Fine, I can, I can give up the meat for a while or even forever. That may be what he means by weak or he may be referring to those with no standing in society, the poor and the powerless. Paul is willing to get down among people like that and not stand superior to them. But either way, whatever he means by the weak, he's saying he is willing to adapt. He's willing to be highly flexible to win all kinds of people to Jesus. And that will often involve being uncomfortable as he steps out of what he's used to. It will often mean he gives up his own personal preferences It will mean his own likes take a back seat much of the time. Now, it does not mean, of course, that Paul is limitlessly flexible. We shouldn't get that idea. One commentator has pointed out he does not say, to the gossip, I become a gossip. He doesn't say, to the adulterer, I become an adulterer. I knew a professing Christian who used these words about all things to all people as an excuse to go and get drunk every weekend. I think the idea was I become drunk to win the drunk. But not surprisingly, he never won anyone to Christ. And in fact, he didn't keep up his own profession for very long at all. Paul is not calling us to be flexible to the degree that we go into sin. We know from reading his letters, even this letter, he's very willing to confront culture where it needs to be confronted. He won't compromise on the issue of idolatry, for example, or what's right and wrong in sexual relationships. We saw that earlier in the letter. And Paul will not water down the gospel message, even if people find it offensive. So if we're going to follow Paul's example here, we have to first be clear on what the essentials of the gospel are. And we have to be clear that ultimately we are serving Christ. That will prevent us from taking Paul's challenge here and turning it into an excuse to just go along with everything. It's not what he's calling us to. We're not called to compromise the truth 
and compromise our own witness just because we want to fit in at all costs. That won't make a positive impact on anyone. But so long as being flexible doesn't involve sin or leading others into sin, then Paul will identify with people. He will do what he can to relate to them. He won't insist on what he's comfortable with or what he likes or what he would prefer. He let all of that go so that by all possible means he might save some. And look how he finishes this in the middle of verse 22. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What does that last statement mean? I do this for the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Well, Don Carson helps us understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that he cannot conceive of any other way to be a Christian. To follow the crucified Messiah means Paul must take up his own cross daily, die to self-interest, and serve the one who bought him. We cannot properly promote the gospel any other way. To promote it this way, by dying to self-interest, giving up all insistence upon the sacredness of our rights and striving to win as many as possible is to follow Christ crucified, who died literally to his self-interest, gave up all insistence upon the sacredness of his very real rights and set himself to win men and women from every tribe, people and tongue and tribe and nation. There is no other way of following Christ there is no other way of sharing in the gospel's blessings. So finally, how can we put this into practice? Well, we can begin by asking, what rights do I cling to so tightly that I just couldn't imagine ever giving them up? Am I ruled by my desire to do what I want whenever I want? Am I unwilling to be inconvenienced for the sake of others? What about that person in your home group? The person you just find exhausting? Will you persevere with that person? Will you be the one to sit and listen to them when others are avoiding them? What about the person at work who's like that or at school? Are you willing to listen to things that you find boring just so that maybe sometime you can let that person know about Jesus, the one who cares about them more than anyone else? Do you look down on people who are posh? Have you no time for people who've grown up with privilege? Or if we turn it around, do you look down on people who didn't grow up with the privileges you had? If you don't get good service in a restaurant or at a hotel, 
Do you insist on exercising your right to get a bit snarky and precious about that bad service? How you deserve better? Or are you willing to forego that right in the hope that maybe in choosing to be gracious, you might make a positive impression? Maybe even have an opening to explain why you chose not to be snarky with that person who's probably expecting it from you. To tell them that at the center of your life, there's good news about new life in Christ. So you can let little things go. If you get passed over for a promotion, or if you lose out on some kind of award, do you exercise your right to sulk about it and throw your toys out of the pram? Do you allow yourself to resent the person who benefited instead of you? Or do you choose to be gracious about missing out? What about visitors here in church? Do we expect them to know how we do things here? Or for the sake of the gospel, are we willing to stop worrying so much about how we do things here? We're never going to compromise on our message. But surely we can compromise on a whole lot of other things. Such as, for example, our right to have a comfortable chat at the end with people we know well. Can't we choose sometimes to give that up so we can go and speak to someone we don't know well? Don't we have rights? Of course we do. But as Christians, isn't there something that's more important to us than our rights? Isn't there someone who's more important? Aren't we willing to miss out on some of our rights and put up with some discomfort so that others can hear about our Savior? And aren't we glad to follow the one who gave up his self-interest and his rights for us? We're going to close with a song that reminds us Jesus is our king, yes, but our servant king. From heaven you came.